Ukraine today, Taiwan tomorrow. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Conversation. I'm David Schuster. As the world continues to watch the tensions between the United States and Russia over Russia's war in Ukraine, there are some concerns among national security analysts that what China is doing to the United States is already much worse. And here to talk about that is General Rob Spaulding. He is a retired Air Force Brigadier General, former White House National Security Council Senior Director for Strategic Planning. And he is the author of the book, War Without Rules, and General Spaulding, good of you to join us. The central theme of your book seems to be that communist China has thrown out all of the old rules of war. How so? Well, you know, when I was brought up through the Air Force, I spent 30 years, and most of what we were taught and what we practiced was, you know, war was something that came along as a last result. Everything else you tried and had failed, and now you needed to use military force to achieve a political outcome. And what unrestricted warfare, and that's what War Without Rules is about, talks about is how do you achieve your objectives without actually going to war using things that are everyday, trade, finance, politics, academia, all of the things that we that we have, what we would consider to be peacetime elements of you know, national power. How do you use those actually for war? And you're right that China wants to be the top global superpower by the year 2049. So they are already using things like stealing trade secrets and infiltrating academic institutions and perhaps lying about things like the pandemic. Well, absolutely. And I think what um, what we failed to really recognize is, you know, rather than looking at did the did the did the coronavirus come from a wet market or did it come from a lab? Was it accidental? Was it on purpose? How did the Chinese Communist Party take advantage of the coronavirus? What were some of the actions they took? Obfuscation is one of them. The other is, uh, just like we're seeing uh, with regard to supporting Russia's invasion of Ukraine, how do they change a narrative to be one that's more pro-China or at least pro their communist system? There are some arguments that China's right or claim on Taiwan actually might be stronger than Russia's argument that it somehow that Ukraine belongs to, to Russia. Uh, given the, the focus though on Russia and Ukraine right now, does that increase the probability uh, that at some point, perhaps in the near term rather than the long term, that China actually makes a move on Taiwan? Well, I think what it does is I think Xi's already made the decision. He's already said he's not going to leave it to the next generation. What Putin's invasion of Ukraine does for China is it allows them to see how the West might respond to an invasion of Taiwan. What are the actions they might take and how could that impact China? And so this allows the Chinese Communist Party to essentially prepare for those actions. So in, in many ways, this is advantageous for Xi in that he will be prepared for whatever actions we take short of war that might be used to dissuade him or deter him or stop his invasion of Taiwan. So in other words, he might put on some sort of naval blockade to keep the shipment of uh, of weapons that might come from the West from going in to support uh, Taiwan uh, fighters who want to try to somehow fight the invasion. Well, not only that, but he could secure energy supplies. He could secure food supplies. He could ensure that his ability to pay for things is not impacted by SWIFT. Uh, he's not impacted by the IMF or any of the other international institutions that we're currently using to put pressure on uh, the Russian regime. Now you're right that um, that communist China's um, plan for total war is not really a secret because they articulate it in one of their books called Unrestricted Warfare. Um, what is it? What does it say? And first of all, how did you 
how did you come to sort of read Unrestricted Warfare and what did you think when you saw it? Well, it first came out in 1999, I read it then, didn't really understand it, thought it was a little bit wacky, talks about using earthquakes for war. But you know, after you know, almost 20 years later, when I was at the Pentagon supporting the chairman of the Joint Chiefs as his senior China advisor, I'd read it again, and I began to realize that no, this was talking about how the world would change with the internet and globalization, how our connectedness would enable China to leverage those connections to get things that it needed or wanted, or to essentially coerce the companies and countries of the globe to do what they want. We saw that with the NBA. We see that with today, you know, how they're putting pressure on the EU, small countries like Lithuania. They're pressuring other small company countries in Africa and Latin America to stop being friends of Taiwan. So it just showed a different way of thinking about how you use the internet and globalization as opposed to, you know, B2s that I was taught to fly. And it also seems like they're using diplomacy in the sense that sure, they're signing on to global climate change agreements, but there's no indication that they're that they're following up to any of their commitments. Right. They're the biggest CO2 producer. They they're completely destroying the the fisheries around the world in the in the seabeds. And I think, you know, what you never hear, you never hear the 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 environmental activists say anything about China. And that is because they know that China really won't respond to them. You know, whenever they the the Greenpeace has gone out uh, to oppose the Chinese uh, fishers, they they ram their ship. So it's it's a completely different way of dealing with you know non-governmental organizations and international institutions. They just don't care. There's also the issue of fentanyl, they're the number one producer of the drug, which has been responsible for so many deaths in the United States. And they continue to pledge and President Xi continues to say, oh yeah, we're trying to stop it. Uh, is that just another lie? Well, you notice they don't have a fentanyl problem in China and all the fentanyl and precursors come from China. It's not made in some you know, trailer in the middle of Missouri. It's made in factories, actually coming out of factories in China and sent to the United States and other countries around the world. And it's tens of thousands of Americans that die every single year. So yeah, they, they could stop it if they wanted to, but you know, they're making money and they're, you know, we're getting weakened. So given a China's ability to weaken the United States, whether it's through fentanyl, whether it's through lying about you know global climate change, or whether it's through economic espionage or infiltrating institutions, what is it that Americans can do to try to push back aside from being aware, being aware of it all? Well, first of all, we shouldn't have sent all of our industrial base to China. You know, all those jobs that we that we sent overseas. You know, we could have done that here, and if we did it here, we have environmental laws that we comply with. We have labor laws that we can comply with. So rather than having all the pollution and slave labor like the Uyghurs in China, you would have it here where people could be prosperous and happy. And ultimately, that's what we need to do. In that decoupling, we can begin to rebuild a. America. We can invest in infrastructure, manufacturing, science and technology, STEM education, like we did during the Cold War. And I think therein lies how we inspire the rest of the world. It's by providing for the prosperity of Americans. 
Now, the, the argument that some people have about being so worried about China is they say, look, if you, if you look at China's own demographics, they have an aging population that they're not gonna be able to sustain. Their economy's already in some trouble and has stopped growing at the rate it was growing 15 years ago. Uh, they're gonna have their own domestic problems over the next 20 or 30 years. They're gonna pale in comparison to whatever domestic problems we may have in the West. And as a result, people say, well, maybe we shouldn't worry that much about China. First of all, what do you make about the argument that China is headed for some severe domestic economic problems? Well, the question I would ask is if they invade Taiwan, then what? That's first of all. Second of all, they're, they actually understand their demographic problems. They understand the fact that they're overweighted in young males. What they're doing is something called the Belt and Road Initiative. The Belt and Road Initiative not only connects them to resources, mines and ports and rail, but also connects them, those, those countries, to China's productive markets. And so they're trying to create their own economic system that is much like you know the Soviet Union was without all the military. They're using essentially a lot of the tools that the United States used at the end of World War II to create their um, to, to create the, the free order. They're just going to make it a very authoritarian order because they're going to supply the things that those leaders of those countries need to create an authoritarian system that's based on this relationship with China's economy. And one of the things that authoritarians need are, of course, information about their population. And that's where China's domination of artificial intelligence uh, seems to sort of be going. They already have the ability, as I understand, to essentially give every citizen a scorecard. I mean, use artificial intelligence to essentially keep track of people's behaviors and movements. And therefore, if you wanna buy a house, if you wanna buy a car in China, well, suddenly <laughs> you've got a score and you've gotta have a certain score that is meets approval of the Chinese government in order for your life to move forward. Absolutely, and 5G is really about taking that from that data that's collected from your smartphone and building it into the city around you. So rather than having the smartphone track you, which is bad in and of itself, now cameras placed all over the city are going to be tracking you. Of course, now you won't have to use your smartphone to order an Uber. You can just say, hey, I want an Uber. Now all this data that's being collected about you is owned by the state and used to you know, punish you if you don't do what's right and reward you if you do what's right. What do you see as being the sort of the, the greatest danger? Speaking of Taiwan, you mentioned, you know, first up Taiwan. Um, do you see that as something happening soon? Do you see it in terms of months, in terms of weeks? You mentioned certainly that President Xi doesn't want to leave it to the next generation, but how, how imminent is China's threat of Taiwan? I think it's within the next three to five years. And what would you argue if you're still at the Pentagon, the White House National Security Council, what would you advocate in terms of what the US response should be? So first of all, I, we're not gonna get into a war over Taiwan. We really can't, because you have the risk of nuclear escalation. So thinking about things like resupply of the Taiwanese or even helping them evacuate, those are the things we should think about with regard to Taiwan. But more importantly, this decoupling and investing in our own democracies and that of our allies and partners ought to be where we're focusing our attention over the next decades. In other words, taking some economic precautions in addition to whatever sort of military supplies we might want to give to Taiwan or be able to plan to give to them in the event of an invasion. Absolutely, we're beginning to see supply chain problems now with the China's lockdowns. And so it's gonna get even worse if they do invade Taiwan because they're gonna cut us off completely. General Rob Spaulding, former Air Force Brigadier General, former White House National Security Council Senior Director for Strategic Planning. And his new book just out is War Without Rules. For anybody who has even an inkling about the threat from China, you should definitely read this book. It's gotten rave reviews. And General Spaulding, thanks for joining us on the conversation. We appreciate it. Thank you so much.
Campaign 2022, welcome back to the conversation everybody. Voting has begun in some of the early primary states, including the state of Ohio, where there is a terrific battle, both the Republican side and the Democratic side for US Senate. Rob Portman, the Republican is retiring. And we have an amazing candidate on the Democratic side, Morgan Harper. She is a consumer protection attorney. She's also a community organizer. And she is, as I said, one of the Democratic candidates for US Senate in Ohio. Morgan, welcome to the program. The primary is May 3rd, how's it going? It's good. I mean, you know, it's a a full court press here in Ohio. There's been a lot of confusion around the redistricting, map drawing. A lot of people don't even know there is a primary, and we are the main <laughs> entity, our campaign, our grassroots campaign that's actually reaching out to voters in this primary because we want people to know they have a choice. As we know, the party often doesn't like to educate people about their choices, but we're finding once people know I'm in it, that we have this platform that includes things like Medicare for all, they're very supportive. So we just have to spread the word as quickly as we can over the next couple of weeks. And as you mentioned, the party establishment, I suppose their candidate is Tim Ryan, a congressman. How do you distinguish yourself? What are the main differentiators between you and Congressman Ryan? <laughs> Where do I begin? Well, you know, there's there's a number of, of policy differences. I mean, one, I don't take any corporate PAC money, grassroots candidate. Tim Ryan has been one of the biggest takers of lobbyist money over his 20 year congressional career, including over $400,000 from defense contractors, for example. And it's flip flopped on every major issue. I mean, he used to be pro-life. Now, as he evolved in his political career, trying to move up, evolved on that issue and, and became um, in support of, of abortion access. Used to be a member of the NRA, take money from the NRA, evolved on that issue as well. In fact, supported legislation that blocked the ability to hold gun manufacturers accountable and liable when uh, mass shootings occur. And you know, has also flip-flopped on Medicare for all, used to support it, now doesn't. Stated reason because he wants to look out for union workers when in fact, as we know, most everyone, everyone, including a lot of union workers, would benefit from universal health care. So just and, and and on the I mean, obviously on the other side of that, I am in support of all of those things and I've always been on the right side of those things. But um, but yeah, no, I mean that that is the kiss of death in Ohio politics to flip-flop in this way. Voters aren't buying it. His strategy, it is clear, is to try to be a Republican in order to be able to win this seat. And we have to recognize that that has been a failed strategy for Democrats in Ohio over the past 20 years. We need to stand for something and actually have a campaign, the message that's gonna get that to people and make them believe. And that is things like increasing the minimum wage, Medicare for all, standing up for our values, not throwing some of our constituencies under the bus, like it, you know these anti-woke things that the party's trying to do. And we gotta, we gotta go big here and we can't continue to do the same old thing. And we have the chance to really make a whole different, a whole different um, case to the voters of Ohio and, and actually win. Well, it's clear that people who know your record know that you have been a consistent progressive throughout your career. And that certainly Tim Ryan has changed positions. But for people who don't know much about you, some of the things that they they may know, maybe because you were you know, this, this strange sort of arrest for trespassing at the Hillard School because you were showing support for an LGBTQ rally. What was that all about? Yeah, so I was invited by a couple of students to attend a walkout they were doing in protest of a bill that's been introduced in our Ohio State Legislature called HB 616 or the Don't Say Gay Bill. So probably folks heard about it in Florida. Has you know this is what happens is those bills will start often in places like Texas or Florida, but then they are quickly replicated in Ohio. They just get less natural attention. So we have one of those bills here. It actually goes even further than the Florida law. It's saying any divisive content. 
uh, would be banned from you know from being taught. And so I was proud and actually you know to hear from students who are going to be speaking out against that, walking out from you know the suburban district outside of Columbus and went to it. Spoke for a couple of minutes and and left and and didn't really you know interact with any school officials. But then a couple of days later, via Twitter DM, got a notification that they had filed a police report um, against me. But yeah. you had been invited there by by the students, right? I mean, you had been invited, invited there. This wasn't in the school; it was outside the school. Or yes, on a football field, invited by students. Students let the administration know they're going to be organizing this. Let them know that I was going to be attending. And look, I mean, it was very clear. And this is this is the political climate we're in right now. That you know they're trying to make an example out of me. I heard from actually people who have formerly worked in that district after the fact that this was 100% racially driven, and and then trying to also silence the the voices of students, which is what we should all be focused on that are saying, we don't wanna live in a state where we aren't free to be who we are, where we have teachers that can't teach in the way that they wanna be taught and where we have parents who then aren't able to send their kids to an educational environment where they're gonna be able to you know, get the, the best education possible. So this is, it's real out here in Ohio and I was proud to stand with those kids and I will be always willing to stand on the side of, of what's right and, and not be fear in fear of any sort of retribution or political gamemanship that suburban school districts are trying to throw at me. Now you mentioned a few minutes ago that it seems that Tim Ryan is in fear of the unions and maybe that explains his position in terms of flip flopping from Medicare for all to somehow being against it. But it is clear of course that Ohio is a very big union state and there's certainly a lot of union Folks who are skeptical about Medicare for all. Um, why? And is it is it messaging? And what what should the proper message be if you're talking to a union household about here's why you should support Medicare for all? Well, it's really interesting because I have talked to a lot of union members throughout this campaign of the last few years, and you know I was also raised by someone who was in a union. You know when I was when I was younger, and so I I want to make very clear that in no way is it inconsistent to be both on the progressive side of things and also pro worker, pro union. Okay. And what I've heard from a lot of union workers, in fact, you know, attending a strike that happened in the Toledo area, Northwest Ohio, was they're striking because of their negotiated healthcare coverage. Deductibles under that plan had increased three times, you know, year to year. And their wages aren't keeping up with that kind of increase. And they are in fear of anyone in their family getting sick. So you know, a lot of a lot of union workers are waking up to the fact, just like a lot of other people too, that our healthcare system is not sustainable. That it has been on the side of making a lot of money for big pharma, big insurance, and for that to change, we have to implement a policy like Medicare for all. And yes, folks who have existing benefits that have been negotiated through their union, all of these policies would be phased in. But more than anything, going to the other side of this will get us in a place where we all have more predictability around coverage and cost and that we don't live in fear of getting sick. If you are victorious on May the 3rd, you'll go into a general election. There'll be a lot of things sort of hanging in the air in terms of policies from the Biden administration. One of them that seems to be bubbling up now is perhaps eliminating student debt. A lot of universities obviously in Ohio, but there's also some concern about well, who would pay for this sort of thing. Where do you come down on eliminating student debt? And what would you say to President Biden if you are the Democratic nominee and you're talking about the politics of Ohio and why this might, you know, how this needs to cut? Cancel it. Cancel it. We need historic levels of turnout among young people to have any shot of winning this Senate seat as Democrats. We need to fulfill the promises that were made. We need to recognize this is a multi-generational issue actually. Cancel it. We have given lots of breaks to very large corporations to be able to 
grow and make more money. And we need to be able to provide that same type of opportunity for everyday people. That's what people in Ohio want of all ages, but especially young people. And and this is the thing. I mean, we're seeing what the national you know democratic strategy, this like discounting young people, discounting black voters, discounting all of it. It won't work. We win by turning out our base in huge numbers, not pretending to be Republicans like my opponent. And that's the key in this Ohio Senate in Ohio Senate race. And that's how we're gonna win. And that's what and I represent through our campaign. And on the Republican side of the Senate race in the Buckeye State, you have these Republicans who seem to be moving further and further to the right, embracing Donald Trump, whether it's Mandel or J.D. Vance, who Donald Trump just endorsed. What do you make of what is going on in Republican politics in Ohio right now? Yeah, it's a race to try to drum up support among their base. They all have been vying for Trump's endorsement over the last several months. I debated Josh Mandel twice, who is you know still considered one of the Republican frontrunners. And and here's what's happening there. I mean, they're throwing out their faux economic populism, ranting about career politicians, ranting about how they're gonna take on big tech, JD Vance in particular, ranting about how they're gonna drain the swamp, continue that Trump tradition. It's all nonsense. But what does it take to expose that? Somebody who actually is about doing those things, not just talking about it, who's saying that they're not gonna take corporate money, who actually has a track record like I have of standing up to big tech and also being willing to implement the policies that are gonna improve people's lives. Medicare for all, increasing wages, checking the unbridled corporate power that has really left so many of us in a more vulnerable position. That is what we have to do to counter the absolute nonsense that is going on on the right. We are not gonna do that by pretending to be them. And that's the weakness of my primary opponent in Tim Ryan. You mentioned the, the Mandel debate. That was a weird one because Mandel seemed to act like a horse's ass to you with one of his comments. Uh, and then he had the audacity to stick it out, out his hand as if you know he wanted you to shake his hand at the end. Is he just a bad person? Is he, I mean, what was it like to be on stage with him, to interact with him? What did you make of that? Yeah, I mean, he he is not a, a good guy. And, and it's all, I think that was what, struck a lot of people, me in the moment and a lot of people who watched is that at the end of calling me angry 12 times, calling me stupid, that he thinks I'm gonna shake his hand and there was like call it a day because it's all, it is all a game for them. But this is not a game for me. This is not a game for a lot of us. We have people out here dying, violence, healthcare costs, all of this is very real. I am very serious and I'm not giving in to any of that. And I do think that people saw through those debates, both you know the threat of somebody like Josh Mandel becoming a United States Senator, but then also the the need for us to mobilize to really fight back against that and have somebody who's gonna be able to take that on. We need that strong contrast. We need people to be paying attention. And that's what we're trying to do through this primary over the next couple of weeks and beyond. And if you win the primary and then beyond, you win in, in November. And let's suppose the Democrats are able to keep control of the US Senate. Uh, who knows what's gonna happen in the House? What would you argue to the Democrats in terms of the priorities? What should the legislative priorities be for Democrats moving forward? Whew, yeah, I mean, we talked about it. We need to cancel the debt. That's a big one, made the commitment, get it done. Hopefully it's done before I get there, but we need to do that. We need to understand that our whole rights are at risk right now. That's why I support expanding the Supreme Court to make sure that we're able to protect abortion access, voting, all of that. We need to increase the minimum wage. And then fundamentally addressing some of the systemic issues in the economy will require reconfiguring our competition policy, antitrust policy to ensure that workers in a stronger position, small, medium sized businesses can compete. And then healthcare is at the root of all of it, Medicare for all, let's do it. Morgan, what's the website for people who wanna help you down the stretch here? 
morganharper.org, MH4OH on all platforms. Really appreciate any support people can throw our way. Morgan Harper, she is the progressive Democratic US Senate candidate in the state of Ohio. The primary is May the 3rd. Morgan, good luck to you. Thank you so much. And thanks for being on the conversation. That'll do it for this edition of the show. On behalf of Alyssa Simmons, Craig Lowry, Asher Caulfield, Gina Kim, and the rest of the gang at the Young Turks, I'm David Schuster. Thanks for watching.